Tonight, actually, the passage isn't that long, and so I actually embedded it in the outline. So on your um, seats there, there's a little outline. Some good songs for what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, talking about a weird story. A weird story. This is a story that I've been living with and teaching on for many years, and the more that I think about it, the more new things keep coming out of this story. I don't know if you have scriptures like that. I'd encourage you, um, when you come to the weird stories, sometimes it's tempting to just run by them and go find something comforting, something that you know, especially if they're weird stories that are somewhat disturbing, like this one is. And I'll just encourage you, some of the richest stuff is in the weirdest stories. And, And sometimes... When you're reading the Bible, you don't know what to do with it. Well, you know, that's what pastors and teachers are for. Study Bibles can help. Talking to other Christian friends. What do you think about this weird story? Can we just, you know, get some coffee and have some fellowship about this weird story? Um, This is one of the, I think that sometimes the strange things are usually connected to God's mysterious way of healing and the upside down nature of the kingdom. And I hope that we'll see that as we look about uh, at this story in Numbers 21. If you have the outline, you have it there. But if you want to look at your own Bible on your phone, we're going to be in Numbers 21. So this is a story that takes place when Israel was wandering around in the desert for the 40 years. Um, I actually believe that Moses wrote the five books of the first five books of the Bible, five books of Moses. I think there's good reasons for thinking he wrote them. And I think actually knowing that they were written while they were wandering through the desert um, actually makes a lot of sense with this story. This is a story that I think illustrates what Moses is going to say later in Deuteronomy 8 about the purpose of their wandering for 40 years. There was a purpose to it. And um, some of these stories are worth digging into and wrestling with, and I think this is one of those. But it's a passage that provokes a lot of questions. A lot of questions. Um, let me just read it, and we'll see uh, if it provokes some questions for you. I suspect it will. So it's, when it says they here in verse, uh, chapter, starting at verse 4, chapter 21, it's talking about the Israelites with Moses at the helm. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around to Edom. But the people, means the Israelites, grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God. Some translations say they murmured against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people. And many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Okay, so that's a weird story, right? Yeah. 
provoked a few questions, maybe, I hope. Um, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll dig into this, this story. Lord, we do thank you that stories like this weren't edited out of the Bible. But Lord, we, we need your help, because there's a lot of weird stuff in this story. Help us to see how this um, reveals you, the things you care about, things that matter, even how this reveals something about the nature of Jesus and his love. We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, it's a passage that provokes a lot of questions, doesn't it? The first one is that great Indiana Jones questions, right? The great, you guys seen, I, I was doing my little poll. Can I use an Indiana Jones illustration? Because I don't know if everybody's seen this movie. Have you seen the movie? I'm not going to spoil, okay. So you know the point where he gets, like, he drops down, you know, that, that hole in the desert there, and all of a sudden, snakes, right? And what did you say? Snakes. Why do there have to be snakes, right? And that's the kind of question you have here. Snakes, what? I, I, like the, it starts out like the kind of thing you've probably heard from other stories, right? Because it's actually not the only time that God's people murmur and complain, especially as they're wandering around in the desert. But this time, God sends venomous snakes among the people. Some of them get bit and they die. And you're like, what? What? Snakes. Why snakes? It's odd, isn't it? It's odd. And I think it's just at that point where rather than saying, I don't like this story, I'm going to go find a story I like, I think that's the point where you need to wrestle with why snakes. But before we talk about why snakes, let's talk about what is it that brings the snakes in the first place. This idea of murmuring or speaking against God. Now you might read that and you might think, well, gosh, he's so insecure that if you diss him, then he's going to like send venomous snakes and kill you. Great. You know, that's the kind of God I want to worship, right? That's not really what's going on here. Now, I think you need to, 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 to think of it this way. Murmuring. What is murmuring? Kind of under your breath, kind of passive complaining about God. Murmuring is actually more than complaining. Murmuring is slander against God. It's slandering his character, in particular, contending that he does not care and has no power to do good anyway. Look at what they say. They spoke against God, verse 5, and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? So he's an idiot, right? That was stupid. Why'd you waste your time delivering us from Egypt only to have us die in the desert? God, that makes no sense. You ever, can you relate? You ever thought that? Ever wanted to say that? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. So you're not providing well. You're stupid, your plan makes no sense, and you're not providing for us. That's murmuring. God, you're not providing. We deserve better than this. Now, the irony of this, the irony is that he's actually providing for them in many miraculous ways. The manna, that the bread that they hate, that's the detestable food that they're complaining about. 
The manna is this miraculous bread that God gave them that came down from heaven. And there's lots of speculation about what was it. I don't want to get into all that right now. But it was miraculous bread that he had given them. And they're saying, we detest this miserable food. The verses right before this text, right before where I started reading, talk about a battle and how the Lord had delivered them from a military situation. So he's provided for them, miraculously preserving them from an enemy that was much bigger and more powerful than them. And then he's also giving them the food that they need and they're complaining about all of it. Sometimes when you're in that place of complaining and murmuring, you can't actually even see what's going on. And that's kind of what's going on here. But here's the heart of it. They don't want God to determine the provision they want to be able to place their order and have him fill it. They don't want God. They want God on a leash. And in that, they're very much like us. Right? Often we want God to be the divine pharmacist rather than the divine physician. The pharmacist, the one who you give him the script, you diagnose yourself, you tell him what you need, and then you ask him or demand that he fill the script. But he won't do that. He won't do that. And, and the thing about this is, this murmuring is not a little matter. This murmuring, doubting the goodness of God, is the sole poison that's killing them and it's killing us. It's not a minor deal. They're not just complaining, they're saying to God, you don't care, you don't provide, you don't know what you're doing. And that is the sole poison that's killing them. Now, of all the things God could have done in response to murmuring, why snakes? Well, let's think of it. There's a, there's a couple reasons, I think, perhaps. One is, Snakes were a sign of power for the Egyptians. Now, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, these, these, uh, these books were written, you know, centuries, millennia later. But there's a lot, of, a lot of evidence that they actually, the things that are named in these five books of Moses have a lot to do with distinguishing the true religion of Yahweh from the Canaanites and the Egyptians. After all, they've just been delivered from Egypt and they're tempted to go back. There are places where Israel wants to go back. They want to go back and be under the serpent's power. You remember when Moses threw down his staff and it became a serpent, right? It became a snake. And then the magicians of Egypt, what did they do? They threw down their staffs and they created snakes as well. The snake God was one of the most important gods in Egypt, except Moses' staff ate the other serpents, if you remember that, right? The same staff that he used to strike the Nile god and turn it to blood, right? So all of these gods, the things that provide power and protection in Egypt, here we have serpents killing. It's almost a visible, lived parable. You want to go back to Egypt? You want to go back to Egypt? 
and be subject to the serpent's power again. But beyond Egypt, I think God is wanting them to think even farther back to another story about a serpent. Because honestly, what they're dealing with here is exactly what Adam and Eve were dealing with in the garden. If you think about it, before Adam and Eve sinned by taking the apple, they first sinned by thinking God was less than he really was. They made him into an idol in their minds. They believed that he wasn't good, that he was holding out. All of these trees you can have for food, but that one. And, and what did they say? That one looks good to eat. And Satan came along and said, don't even touch it, right? In other words, what Satan does is he plays on their suspicion that God is not good and he amplifies it. He says, you're right, he doesn't even want you to touch that. God never said they couldn't touch it, right? But you already see the poison beginning to work as they begin to doubt God's goodness. Martin Luther said one time that before we break any of the Ten Commandments, we first break the first commandment. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. But before you lust, before you covet, before you murder, you believe that God is not enough. That God is holding out. That God does not want your joy to happen. And then you feel justified in taking matters into your own hands. I think there's a connection there. They're supposed to, to remember the last time they began to feel like God was holding out the good stuff from them. It led to death. It led to brokenness. See, the real sin is that rather than worshiping God and thanking him for what he sees fit to provide, the Israelites, like us, try to use God as a means to an end. But here's the thing. God is too good to let us use him as a means to an end because he has a passion for his glory and he has a passion for us. We may think murmuring is no big deal, but God sees in it evidence that we would rather use him as a means to an end, as a way to get something we think we really need than have him. So that's the first point of this story, is that murmuring is a way bigger deal than we thought. I, I remember when this really came home to me, I was in seminary and I was still single. And I remember taking the Myers-Briggs test and a professor said, you know, Kevin, this test detects, uh, detected some anger. Like, I think you've got some suppressed anger. And I was like, really? I'm, you know, I used to be angry. Then I became a Christian in ninth grade and I haven't really been angry since then. He's like, well, you may want to explore that because this test usually, if it picks up on something, there's probably something to it. I was like, okay, whatever. So, you know, I graduate, I come down here to Nashville, I'm working at a church, and then I go back up to St. Louis to be part of this uh, kind of set of meetings. Um, Lay Renewal was the ministry, and we went to this church, and um, Scotty Smith, who was my pastor and, and boss at the time, started preaching one night on anger, and I was playing in the, in the band, and I was like, oh, here, it's interesting, here he is, going to have this sermon on anger, and here I am back in St. Louis, oh, I remember... When Seth Dearness, you know, who's now with the Lord, he told me I had a lot of anger and I needed to explore that. And um, isn't that interesting? Here I am back in St. Louis and Scotty's preaching about anger. But, you know, oh, that was kind of weird. I, I don't think I'm angry. And then as he went on, I was like, oh, maybe I am angry. And then as the, as the sermon kept going on and on, I finally was like, 
you know I am angry, and I know why. Fortunately, as the sermon went on, I went to the next step, which was, I have no right really to be angry at God, but he's still pursuing me. Here's why I'm angry at God. Because when I became a Christian in ninth grade, I would say, yes, I believed I was a sinner, but what I really wanted were friends. And here I am, like, what, 28, 29? Um, No, how old? 1995, I'm 31, and I'm still not married. And I don't really have very many friends. And it seems like God has went out of his way my whole Christian life to thwart every attempt I try to pursue to find friends. And I am angry about that. And then I realize I've been trying to use God as a means to an end. Like, I would say I wanted God, but what I really wanted was friends. And I thought, being a Christian, because all these Christians seem to be friends, so I thought, maybe if I become a Christian, that I would get friends. And then I realized, even though I've been trying to use God as a means to an end, rather than worshiping God, he's still pursuing me, even in this moment. And it was that gentle grace that I needed to be able to admit, I really am kind of angry. But My anger is so much based upon me trying to use him as a means to an end and him saying, Kevin, I'm not going to let you do that because using me as a means to an end is soul killing. And I have so much more for you. What is it you think you need more than God himself? What is it that you think you could never forgive God for if he took it away? What is it that if you never get it will tempt you to turn back from following Jesus. See, that's what this story is about. If you don't get your way, what will you do with God? And what do you think God is going to do about that? Maybe he's already at work on your idol of trying to use him as a means to an end. You may be asking him to fill this prescription over here for the diagnosis you made, and he may say, no, actually, this is what's going on and what needs to happen. I have to warn you, (laughs) he is working on healing your soul, but his way of healing is often confusing and even strange, and that leads us to the next point of the story. What a strange way of healing. If the sending of the serpents is strange, but the more we press into it, it seems to make sense. I think connecting to Adam and Eve in the garden is the main point of the saints. Then what's the deal with the serpent? I mean, think of it. How long do you think it takes to cast a bronze serpent? It's obvious that the snakes are biting people and they're dying. And God doesn't take away the snakes. He says, make a bronze serpent. Not only does he say, make a bronze serpent, think of it. The people are told to look at the thing that's killing them. Talk about triggered, right? Look at the thing that's killing you. Not only that, the thing that's killing you, these snakes that are all around the ground, we're going to put the serpent up on a pole so that you have to look up and you can't look down. Whoa, that's weird, isn't it? Why don't you just take away the snakes, God? Why? Verse 9 makes it clear that when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So even after the bronze snake is made and is put on the pole, the venomous snakes remain. 
They don't get taken away. This isn't one of those stories where, okay, they say they're sorry and then everything's better. Because the issue in their heart is so much deeper and embedded in their heart than a simple sorry will fix. Trying to use God as a means to an end is a deep poison. And it doesn't come out easily. Why doesn't God remove the snakes? He obviously is after a deeper healing than the healing of snake bites. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 8, Moses explains, listen, God wants his people to trust him. He's always wanted that. In fact, it's the whole point of the wandering in the desert. The whole point was to do battle with the enemy of their unbelief and teach them that as great an enemy as Egypt was, an even greater enemy was their own unbelief and their own doubting of God's goodness and doubting that he could be trusted. In chapter 8, verse 2, Deuteronomy is actually Moses' last sermon. He looks back over all of the wandering in the desert and he preaches a final sermon. That's what Deuteronomy is. The second giving of the law. It's looking back. And this is what he says in chapter 8. Listen to this, starting verse 2. Remember, remember, O Israel, how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with his manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. And that word discipline can also be translated trained. So what God is saying is the whole point of wandering 40 years in the desert was not to get from point A to point B. If you ever actually saw a map of the wanderings of the children of Israel, I've got one upstairs in my office, the cool old uh, Victorian, you know, picture that I framed. It just like goes all around and doubles back on itself. And that's when God was leading them with a fiery cloud and a pillar, right? Like they weren't wondering which way was God's will, like we do sometimes. Like literally they were following God and he's still leading them all over the place and doubling back on itself. He obviously had a point in the journey and Deuteronomy 8 tells us what it is. It's to humble you to make you hungry so that I could feed you, so that you could learn that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And you maybe recognize those words. Those are the words that Jesus quoted when he was in the desert, when he faced the same temptation to murmur against God and to take care of things himself, provide what he needed. Satan said, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry. And he doesn't give in to the temptation. Instead, he quotes the lesson that God was trying to teach the people in Israel. God is a good God. You can trust him. But that's the kind of lesson that's very hard to learn just by being told. Because this poison is deep in your soul. God is not interested in superficial healing He's going after the spiritual poison that is killing them. 
Now, having people look at a bronze serpent seems pretty bizarre. And even makes you wonder, maybe, that we don't have time to go into this, what's the difference between a golden calf and a bronze serpent? But the cross is the strangest healing ever devised. And you know what? In John chapter 3, and if you guys know any Bible verses, you might know one of the verses in John chapter 3, right? Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Okay, but do you know what else is in John chapter 3? Do you know what John chapter 3, 14 and 15 are about? This story. Listen, Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him, for God so loved the world that he gave his own only Son, who to whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And in John's Gospel, whenever he talks about being lifted up, he's talking about the cross. They're going to nail him to a cross, and they're going to lift him up on Calvary. And you're going to look. Healing comes through looking at the cross. And here's the thing. It's not so different from looking at the bronze serpent, because when you look at the cross, you look at what's killing you. You don't do an end run around your sin in coming to God for salvation. You look at the cross and you say, my sin put him there. But he invites me to come into his presence anyway. My sin put him there, but he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Right? Looking at the cross means not looking, keeping one eye looking down and one eye at the cross, hedging your bets. Just like in the desert, you couldn't look at the snakes and sort of make sure you, know, you weren't stepping on one while you're looking at the bronze serpent. Looking at the cross is all or nothing. See, God's goal is not to provide a salvation so that we can just run off and live as we like. His goal is to make us live upon him, to derive our life from him. If God just wanted to give the Israelites a smooth life, he would have made a straight run from point A to point B. He could have removed the snakes, but his goal is deeper than that. Here's the ultimate goal. He wants to turn your why questions into who questions. He wants to turn your why questions, why has God not given me this? Why has God done this? He wants to turn the why questions into who questions. Here's what I mean. When God brings things into our lives, he wants it to draw us deeper into knowing him and his heart. But sometimes we get stuck in these little eddy currents saying why, 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 and we don't get back in the stream heading towards the heart of God. The why questions, they're not unimportant, but they can be little eddies that just kind of swirl around and you don't get anywhere. And what God is saying, God does this weird story to take them from saying, why did you bring us out of here to die in the desert? Say, who is a God who would actually, who would actually design a kind of healing that would 
deal with your suspicion of his goodness by sending his own son to die in your place so that you could fight against that unbelief that God is not good by looking at the cross whenever you're tempted to think that God is holding out the good stuff from me. How can he hold out the good stuff from you? As the Bible says, he who sent his own son to die for us, won't he then give us all things? Right? The Bible says, look at the cross to fight against your suspicion that God is not a good God. God is the kind of God who would send his only begotten son rather than let you live with this soul-destroying poison. Murmuring is usually expressed in questioning why God is doing what he's doing without really caring to know him more deeply through what he's doing. But God wants you to know him more deeply through what he's doing. Who are you that you would save such a people as us? Even his healing is a constant reminder of how much they need him because it's a constant reminder of their sin, right? But there's actually one more little part to this story that's fascinating. And it's this, even God's provision, like in the form of the bronze serpent, even God's provisions, if they get separated from God, can become their own new idols. This, little, this bronze serpent actually shows up later in the Bible. So it, it's quite a ways down in the Bible. It's in 2 Kings chapter 18. In the third year, of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Now, Hezekiah is one of the good kings. So when you get asked that on your Old Testament test, Hezekiah is one of the good kings. Remember that, okay? He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Look at verse 4. He removed the high places, that means the places where they're worshiping pagan gods. He smashed the sacred stones and cut down the Asherah poles. Uh, Asherah is a female fertility god of the Canaanites. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. So the thing that God gave them for healing, they separated from God. They no longer were looking to God for healing. They were looking to the thing that he gave them and worshiping it and burning incense to, to it. Guys, we do that all the time. I'm so lonely, and then God gives me a friend, and then I try to suck all the life out of that person. And God says, I can't let you do that. Now, I don't know everything that he brings into your life and why, but I do know that God still cares about you looking to him, not to his provisions. Because even God's good gifts can become things that we use to try to control and take care of ourselves rather than trusting him. The things that he gives us to teach us to trust him, sometimes we can disconnect from him and just look to them by themselves. We only make idols out of good gifts, whether it's sex or money, relationships, intellect, but we do it all the time because we wanna trust ourselves rather than God.
We want to trust something we think we can control, something that we think we can manage. But God's too good to let us live with that soul-destroying poison. Only, ultimately, the only way we're able to trust God is to continue to cast our eyes upon Jesus hanging upon the cross because that's where the why questions dissolve into the ultimate who questions. It's where we find encouragement to say, I don't know what God is doing. I don't know what God's doing, but I know that it can't possibly be that he hates me. Because look at Jesus. I don't know what he's doing, but it can't be possible that he doesn't care about me. But that doesn't mean I've got it all figured out. And that doesn't mean it doesn't suck right now. But the cross comes and does battle with our unbelief. And we need it. Because murmuring is not something that's easily rooted out of our hearts. It's not. But God is committed to it. Let's pray.